Showtime. Welcome to Demand Does the Six Questions, where the same six questions can tell a unique story. I am your host, Demand, father of two, husband of one, and leader of this here Demondcast. Remember, get on Apple Podcasts and leave a five star review. It helps us out, it helps us get seen by more viewers, the more reviews we have. And the review could say anything from mission accomplished to following instructions to your favorite healthy recipe doesn't matter if you can help us out though that would be awesome and now on with the show welcome to demandas the six questions and today i am here with entrepreneur miguel hampton you are into all sorts of things i I, if, if we if i listed them all it would probably be a half hour, so I guess we'll just skip to the questions. No. It's up to you. Now I'm into all kind of. You you'll say things. I'll say shit stuff. I do creative marketing, PR, photography, videography. Run my mouth. I teach business development and growth strategies. Right now, I seem to be a serial campaigner because I keep running for office because I have issues. I also run political campaigns. Have managed political campaigns, and I'll just. A creative guy out here trying to find his way. We moved here from New Jersey. I was in fashion retail. I worked for um, Claire's. Um, okay. And they had a fashion division called Mr. Rags. And I was their district sales manager. And so I'm, I started out there. And we can do the backstory, forward story. But um, started out there. Ended up running the Northeast. They went out of business. And then while they were going out of business or selling the company, I kind of quit. Okay. And then between there, I had a small business where we were doing, um, we, I managed um, a guy named Jake Roxwell out of Utah and, and his, his um, beginning of his hip hop career, which was really cool. But he also worked for me at Rags while we were out there as well. And so as, as I quit Rags and I went out west to kind of do a tour with him, uh, Tia got pregnant, who's my wife, and she said, I'm going to see my mom. I said, cool. Uh, see you when I get back. Somewhere she tells that story far better than I will ever do. Uh, <laughs> and then I landed here, here being Jeffersonville, Indiana, right outside of Louisville, Kentucky. And oddly enough, couldn't find a job. And so, you know, degree in business management, several years of, of experience. It took my, my, my father-in-law to call a friend to say, hey, you know, son-in-law is looking for a job, can't find one. You think you can help him out? So here's the problem. I make six figures and I'm 20-something years old. And I have a lot of fringe benefits, and I have a bit of an ego that comes with that package. I now exist in a world that won't offer me more than $30,000 a year. And at 18 years old, I made that much money. Uh, Fair <laughs> enough. So, yeah, I was a little arrogant in, in, that, in, that, in that job pursuit. Needless to say, a lady named Agnes Stewart, who owned a company called Incentives, they were a promotional products company, black-owned company, which was interesting because I'd never met a black business owner prior to that. Really? They did promotional products, which I had no idea what the hell that was. Uh, <laughs> I was like, what the hell is a promotional product, right? And so they gave me some education, and then I realized I knew exactly what a promotional product was. And we'd used them for years in, our, in the different companies that I had worked for. And so she said, hey, you know, she was straight up and honest. She was like, look, we can't afford you. We can't even come close to giving you what you're accustomed to making, but I can help you make that kind of money. Okay. And, and so she's like, I'll, I'll help you pay for your insurance. 
meaning I had to pay for half of it, which was really expensive, which was half of the money that they were paying me. Wow. <laughs> so, you know, but we had a baby on the way and I didn't know any better. And so without any other opportunities that existed in my world, um, in order to stay here, I took it, which was really dope because I got to learn the, what I would call a third, there's tiers of marketing and advertising, right? The industry. And we were the bottom of the tier. And so I got to understand an industry that most people don't, aren't, aren't familiar about, unless you're a corporate buyer in that sense. But we all wear some type of branded or promotional product. And so you, then it was called promotional products, you know, that branding thing came later in life. No one was really talking about brand me unless you were a large brand. Right. But that since changed over the last couple of years. Needless to say, went to work for them. Agnes opened up a doorway that had never been in and I brought my expertise to them. I understood the retail side. I understood trends. I, understand, I understood what it meant to launch national platforms and national programs or retail programs. And so in the promotional products business, there was this, there was this organic uh, integration that was happening both from the manufacturer side as well as from the distributor side. And we were a distributor. Um, at the time happened to be, at one point, Agnes was the largest African-American owned distribu distributor, ASI, promotional products distributor in the region. And I think they were doing like 10 million a year. It was, it's amazing, right? I came in on kind of the back side of it, the downslope on their way out. Agnes was, I think at the time, probably 65. So they were older. It started it in 1985, been really successful. They introduced me to the world and, and, it, and it just caught fire. And so part of promotional products are anything that you can print. As a distributor, we basically match our clients with a manufacturer who can deliver a product that fits their brand or their, their rhyme and reason for doing some type of promotional giveaway. Maybe they're doing a trade show or something to that degree. I took my retail background from what I know, was able to patch into companies like Toyota or Norton's, where we were able to help them do corporate retail programs mm. and you know worked with people like Churchill Downs, Kentucky Derby Festival. And then you know, I'm pretty creative, so I could take something that didn't exist and a client could say, hey, we want you know, what, how does this widget get created? How does it get placed? How do we use it? Um, and typically I could come up with something um, and, and deliver. But that's, that's, uh, that's the short version of this long ass story. <laughs> <laughs> Question number one. When did you know you wanted to be an entrepreneur? I didn't. <laughs> so the, the, the challenge with doing this interview today is that I'm trying to decide how authentic I want to be. I'm really, and I'm challenged about where I am mentally right now, right? So I know most people are going to hear, oh, he's mental. No, no, fuck that. It's really my mental process in terms of what you go through as an entrepreneur being out here in this world. We go through a series of ups and downs and things that work, things that don't work. We go through a series of losing money, resources, friends, and family. Those are, that's the shit that nobody tells you. But in that, I have to say, you know, honestly, I never wanted to be an entrepreneur. I just didn't want to be poor. I wanted to. I didn't want to be black in America and not have an opportunity to get a job because white people wouldn't hire you. I started my first business. I, I grew up telling everybody I was 14. My mother, in the last year or two, reminded me I was 11. But we lived in all-white America, and I was the only brown black kid in the community. I was 11 years old, so nobody would give me a job, so I created one. And so a friend of mine, you know, we were like, hey, let's let's go watch the windows of downtown Marysville, Ohio. And 
long story short, our families, our, my mom and his parents supported that stupid endeavor. And they let two young middle school kids go downtown and negotiate the opportunity to wash windows. And we did that for the entire summer and wow. made stupid money. I remember, I think we charged like $5 a window for the inside and then $5 for the windows on the outside. So we were basically making $10 a window per window in downtown for downtown stores. Um, and we did that for a pretty, pretty long summer. My mother tells me we did that until the unions realized that that was a union job. And we shouldn't be doing it. <laughs> um, but true story, you know, I got into entrepreneurship because like most people, you know, in the black community and and, and, and I would say under, what, what is the economically challenged black communities, um, kids sell drugs, right? That's their opportunity. I lived in white America, there was no opportunity to sell drugs. Otherwise I probably would have, mm. you know? So what I did is I washed windows, <laughs> which is something that that falls into the line of black folks too. Is, is some degree of, you know, hospitality servitude, um, right. and, and those are jobs that we can typically get. So, but that's that's really really all I started. I never wanted to be an entrepreneur. You know, I wanted to be successful at whatever I was going to do. I wanted to find opportunities. How did I become an entrepreneur as an adult? You know, because that that went for a really long time as a kid. I was constantly creating. When I couldn't find a job, I create a job. Um, and so I worked for Kroger's, like most kids, mm -hmm. you know, bagging groceries and, and hustling on the side because we learned that you could hustle bagging groceries and, and moving carts. Right. And so we would find extra money there. And then I had a paper route at one point in time and, you know, found out that you could hustle on the paper route too. Definitely when the paper route guy decided that he wasn't going to pay me, but I still had all his papers and people still wanted to buy papers. At one point in time, I, I got into the restaurant business, enjoyed cooking. And so I ended up creating a snack shop and, and some other selling other ancillary things on campus when I went to undergrad. I wasn't like a lot of kids. I always felt more like most of the kids at my school had money. I didn't have any. Right? And so the only way that I was going to get money was to hustle. I didn't have a dad to call. I mean, I had a dad to call, but he wasn't giving me shit. You know, I had a mom I could call, but she couldn't afford to give me shit. Right? And so, you know, that's the whole point of opportunity. That's the lie we tell everybody. Go to college and you'll get a good job. Right? Right. And that's what we tell black kids until they get out in white America and realize they can't get a job. Because if 10 of them show up, only one of them is probably going to get it. And if you're a woman, you're luckier than you are if the guy. That's a whole other story. That being said, I created my own opportunities on campus along with a bunch of buddies and, and we went on to that. And then um, I got hustled into working for Wendy's, which was cool because I needed a job. I used to ride my 10-speed bike in Ohio winters to work, right? Because the guy told me he could help me get the corporate once I graduated. Then I realized he was a franchisee and he was a dick and he was a liar. <laughs> so, so there's that. There's that, right? I mean, I never wanted to be an entrepreneur. I just wanted to be successful. Now, I found entrepreneur opportunities in every aspect of what we were doing in that process. Because while we were still in Ohio, I employed most of my friends who went to college or showed them opportunities where there were, but we were still hustling on the side, doing what? Printing t-shirts, you know, printing paper. Um, my homeboys were DJs, and so we were doing parties and things like that. You know, um, my man Dami used to make these CDs called Making Babies, and we would sell them to the record stores. Um, so we were still doing all of that while I was in my career. And then when I went to Utah, I ended up opening a record label. Really, really more of a record management, only because I had employees who were in that space. I met some really dope people outside of the business who, who really taught me a lot in terms of promotion and how to be out here and be independent. And, and I, if I'm going to be real honest, I took experiences from the relationship that I knew with kids who hustled in the street. I was able to take the things that they were doing and do them legally without the idea of going to jail. 
and creating new opportunity. I mimicked a lot of it. Needless to say, that moved on. And, and that, that, so I never wanted to be an entrepreneur. I just wanted to be successful. I wanted to own my own shit, be independent. There's a difference between free, freedom and independence. And I believe it all day long. And we talk about that later. Landed at Incentives, right? And then during that period while I was at Incentives, they sold the company. And so I was part of that sale. They made me the vice president of sales, which was really cool. At the same time, I was getting recruited by a company called Pacific Somewhere to help them out because they were downsizing their demo divisions in the Midwest. Mm. Um, and so I worked for both companies at the same time. And then uh, shortly after that, maybe about six, eight months, I found myself with no home again. Um, both companies, PacSun, had, had shut down all their demo and test divisions because of the bad economy. Incentives was, was on their, their way out the door. You know, Tia will tell the story. I was sitting on the porch looking like I had nowhere to go. And I didn't. And she was like, let's go get your LeBray peers. And I was like, cool, let's do that. I'm not going back to work no time soon. Didn't know that was true. <laughs> <laughs> so I got my LeBray peers. And then, uh, true story, I, uh, I, I never went back to work for anybody else. I've been working for myself ever since. And again, out of necessity, I didn't choose this. Well, w w yes, I did. I chose it. But I didn't choose what happened. I didn't choose what road drove me down this way. I just woke up and knew that I, I had the capacity to create opportunities at the minimum amount of money that people would will, was already willing to pay me. And I said, why well, work for you for $30,000 a year when I can get that myself? And so that's really how F5 Enterprises was born. You know, we started out, I started out doing some consulting for small retailers in Ohio to, to working with churches. And then somebody asked me for some graphic design and then somebody asked me for some photography and somebody asked me to stand on the stoop and be pretty, you know, and here we are. Question number two. What do you wish you had known when you had first started out? Man. Well, not even first started out. Just what do you wish you had known when you had started out? I'm fighting with that one, bro. I, you know, I, I saw that when you texted me and I was like, yo, what is this? And, and that, I think that's the one that's keeping me up today, right? Really? What, what, because here's the thing. You don't know what you don't know. Right? True. You don't know what you don't know. You only know what you experience. And entrepreneurship is, is not... It's not an easy task. This is, is, in my opinion, this is probably one of the most riskful things anyone can do in their life. It's easy to go work for somebody because they've already put in the sweat equity, they have the resources, and all they're doing is giving you a check for the minimum amount of value that you think you're worth for your time, right? right. Most of us don't value our time that much, so that's another story. If I can answer this question like this, so I'm, I'm, I guess I would say as an entrepreneur, as someone who's out here socially and economically and politically in the world, I'm battle-tested. Mm -hmm. I'm scarred, right? So I got a lot of baggage. Okay. If I knew the things that I was going to do to make sure that opportunities were equal, I wonder if I would do them. What I have done them, what I've spoken up when I shouldn't have or when no one else would. You know, what I've taken opportunities when I was the only black or brown person, when, when no other opportunities existed. You know, what, what I've run for office twice, what I've taken someone else's campaigns and run their campaigns. You know, thinking about lending practices and how racist systemically our banking institutions and our federal government is as it relates to lending and how we allow people based on the shade of their color to have access to resources. You know, what I've gone down that road. You know, what I know about white people in general, wealthy white people, wealthy institutions, um, and how they treat black men or, or Afro-Latino men, as I classify 
in business endeavors without I've done anything different. So I, I think it's, if you think about all the things that I've learned, and to, and to give you an example, you know, the first time I went, I went to get a bank loan for a business, right? No one knew whether I had money or didn't have money, right? And I know wealthy people don't make poor people rich. I relatively don't have shit, don't come for much. You know, it's not like I have family, friends or family that I can call to get money to start a business. And most, and most of the worlds that tell you how, to, that's what they'll tell you how to start, right? And I don't have that, right? right? But nobody knows that until you tell them. Right? Nobody doesn't know that you don't have money until you tell them. Nobody doesn't know that you don't have resources. All they see is this perceived value. The first time I went to get lending, you know, opened up the door to what I did or didn't have. So now you can add or take away value from that perception. And so I went to get a, I went to go get a loan for a business, and they referred me to the micro enterprise um, program, and that's typically used for people who are economically challenged who can't meet a certain grid typically are uneducated have no career and really have no experience in business per se and they usually will lend you three thousand five thousand you know if you're lucky you can get a twenty four thousand dollar loan right it's it's typically a low interest short-term loan but it's usually enough money for a person to fail not not for them really to create an opportunity and so i got referred to that because no one was going to lend me what was crazy is the instructor at the time said, hey, Miguel, what are you doing in here? Said, <laughs> oh, wow. I said, I needed a business loan, and they told me this is where I come. He said, but you could teach this class. I said, I know my experience alone will allow me to teach this class, not only the fact that I have two degrees in business management at this point. And he was like, yeah, I got you. Wow. Right? So that's just the reality, right? You know, had I known that I exposed my hand to where my economic value meant to this community that I lived in, you know, would I have taken that same road, right? Because I didn't get all the money. They still, there was still some discrimination play in that world, even in that process. You know, we still were able to succeed doing many of the things that we did with minimal amount of money. But the reality of it is, is I know my white counterparts could get three to four times that in a traditional system, looking the same way on paper. The only reason I know is because I teach those classes. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't, I don't, you know, I, I think the art, the art, one of my things is to do what you've never done, you must do what you've never done. And so I, I think in this world, it's about taking the first steps to learn, right? And once you learn, then what do you do? You know, if, I know, if, you, if you tell me how you're going to treat me, I can tell you how I'm going to react. Question number three. What's your go-to order at your favorite hometown restaurant? Don't have a favorite hometown restaurant. Okay. I really don't like food. Like don't like sweets. We've give had this discussion. Nice. I, please, please put this on. Give put, me a honey bun. Give me a moon pie. <laughs> give me, get, give me, shit. Give me little Debbie in my backyard. That would be my hometown restaurant, right? <laughs> um, if if I had a restaurant to go to, it'd be Cracker Barrel. But you can also buy moon pie there. You can buy jelly beans. You can buy, you know, you can buy gummy worms, and that's what I typically grab on my way out the door. You know, if Thornton's was a hometown restaurant, right to the left hand side when you walk in, or apple danishes, moon pies, and a nutty bar. That's my meal of preference, truth be told, but it's, it's scary as hell because it'll give you diabetes and make you fat. <laughs> uh, my wife has to regulate the shit I eat because it ain't healthy. Uh, so, no, nah, I don't have a favorite restaurant. If I do, it's breakfast. Okay. Um, so whatever restaurant is local that, uh, that serves breakfast, it's decent breakfast, and they have grits. If you don't have grits, I typically will walk out. Question 
number four. What are you curious about? Not a fucking thing. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> uh, everything, y'all. I'm curious about everything. I, I'm I'm curious about how people function. I'm curious about make, what makes the world tick. I'm curious about economics. I'm 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 curious about why black people in America love fucking America. I, I'm curious about why we allow white people to dictate our livelihood. I'm, I'm curious about why we don't really understand economics um, the way white people understand economics. I, you know, I hate when we use the word affordable housing and black people are like, yes, we need more affordable housing. And white people are like, no, motherfucker, we need to develop your land and kick y'all out so we can build affordable housing and sell that shit to somebody who can afford it. Um, but... I'm curious about a lot of shit, you know. My most curiosity probably right now is how is it that I can teach people to do the things that they don't know how to do when I struggle doing it for myself, right? So I can teach you how to make a million dollars, but sometimes I struggle to be able to do it myself. You know, I have the knowledge, the talent, the resources, and there's, there's these roadblocks that I face. And I think all entrepreneurs face them. I built what I've built to survive, and that transition from survival to thrival was a little unique and it's a little different in personal life and all these things come into play. But I think that's what I'm curious about. You know, what's my next level? Where am I going and how do I get there? That's what I'm curious about because I don't know. Nothing nobody can answer. Just shit you got to do. How long have you been, felt like you've been at that place? Oh, for a while now. For a long while now. As my wife say, I will grind through anything to get somewhere. And that is a true story. I've probably always been there. When I was in sixth grade, I wrote this little morbid ass poem and drew a little, drew a picture and it said, the greatest thing I'll ever do is die. Right? And it got published when I was in sixth grade. It was super cool. You know, then I wasn't really sure what I was writing or where it came from. And then I realized later in life that, you know, in order for you to move beyond, you almost kind of like a butterfly or a caterpillar, you got to cocoon yourself off and move on. You know, but I realized that the character of, of Miguel and whatever phase he's in has to die in order for you, in order for him to move forward. Mm -hmm. Not not physically die, but just kind of metaphorically, things have to be shed off and move. So I think I've always been curious about where I was going and how I was going to get there because I never really told a real story. People be like, "Where do you come from?" And be like, "Oh, my family comes from Panama. They're fairly wealthy, super educated, yada yada yada, and it looks good and it feels good." But the reality of it is, is that I didn't come from that. My family came from that. You know, I came from a very volatile, domestic, violent household, you know, surrounded by, you know, on the outside of our house, child molesters and drug dealers and gangbangers to really racist ass fucking white people. How do you get to a place that's safe? You know, how do you get to equality? How do you find economic stability? How do you how do you find how, how do you not have to fight like I was born to fight? I feel like that. I was even oddly enough, I was born at Fort Knox Army Hospital, right? So I'm born on a military base. I'm born to fight. Been fighting all my fucking life. So that's my curiosity. Who am I tomorrow? How do I get there? There, there's goals and ambitions. I still have them. I'm getting older. I'm tired as fuck sometimes. I work a lot. Work hard. But I, I am curious where I'm gonna be. I, I've been there for a really long time. Probably all my life. More so lately than maybe the last two or three years than ever before. But lots of change. Lots of things have happened. Got a lot of baggage. Do you really think that you're tr you have to be getting somewhere? Oh yeah, you gotta go somewhere. What was it about the destination, about the journey to get there? I don't know. Because I mean, just just from like we've been in each other's lives over the last ten years or so, mm -hmm. and this is you know we've had a few conversations um, 
But some of the things you've told me I've never heard before. You know, that it's a it's one of the reasons I do these is because everybody has a unique interesting journey we've all got you know we've all got different variations on our ups and downs yeah and sometimes i wonder if there's any is is there any place to get really i hope so i you know i don't know maybe it's a constant journey i need this whatever fucking journey i'm on right now need to come to a close and something better happen (laughs) (laughs) that's fair (laughs) but i think you can get somewhere i think you can get somewhere and i think we have to we you're making me think, of course, and answer my own question. You know, we or whatever we have to define where that is, and what that is. Right. You know, maybe we want the house on the hill in, in, a, in a nice community, or maybe in a, in a nice remote area. You know, maybe we we want to achieve financial stability, and what does that look like? Right. You know, for some people, financial stability is having a job and. And, and going to work every day and smiling at their boss and knowing that their company is going to be there for the rest of their lives and they're going to have this American middle class utopia. Or maybe it's building an empire, a degree of wealth and, and things like that. So, yeah, I think you can get somewhere. I think for me it's just trying to figure out where, where, where that is because I think I had a, I had a vision. Mm-hmm. I've had multiple visions. So when I was little, I told my mom I'd retire. I'd make my first million dollars and retire before I was 40. You know, the cool part is, is that, you know, when I go back and calculate it, I did all that. I didn't retire, per se, but I've probably retired several times, and I've lost a shitload of money several times. <laughs> but I, I, I think maybe, you know, out of that curiosity piece is where, what does the end look like now, right, if there's an end in mind? Mm-hmm. Not the end in the, in, in, in the depth of a sense, but the end of the next step, the next journey. And when does the next one begin? You know, I think for me more so when does the struggle end? You know, when when does the challenge end? You know, when you when you I remember and, and I don't know I have so many stories. Like I, I remember first time racism is an interesting thing because it has really fucked me up. <laughs> but I, I remember I remember when I was sitting down working with a guy and my office was on 10th Street and Jeff and he was opening a um, ice cream yogurt space over over near the high school and he talked about painting a clan mural on his wall um, what? had to pay tribute to the community. I was, okay, so their guy hired me. He was from Cincinnati. He was opening up an ice cream shop by Jeff High, and he wanted to paint a clan mural on his wall to celebrate the community. What? Yeah. When, when you have experiences like that, you know, so for me, it's, it's kind of like, when does the struggle end? Like when, you know, so for me, if, if I'm saying, hey, I want, I, want, I want justice, I want equality, I want economic equality, I want to live in a community that, that people support me, you know, based on my brown, black, black skin and heritage, when does that struggle stop? Because I, later years happen and I have a client and the economy is bad and he, he sits me down and we're doing some design work and some other things for them. And he says, Miguel, as much as we love doing work with you, we can't work with you anymore. We got to give the business to people that look like us. <clears throat> so, like I said, I'm, I'm a little worn torn, you know, and I've got some baggage living in the community that I live in, doing business in the community that I live in. Um, and so there's a challenge. So I, I guess my curiosity is for me is when is that, when is the struggle in? Mm-hmm. You know, when is that, when is that journey? When do I get to the journey of equality? When do I get to the journey where I don't have to fight every fucking day because I'm black first? I love creating opportunities, but I hate having to create an opportunity because racism exists. 
That's my curiosity. That's where I land today. Question number five. Is there anything I should have asked but didn't? People sometimes ask how I've survived the way that I've survived and how I've conducted business the way that I've conducted business. You know, when a lot of my counterparts have gone out of business, mm -hmm. you know, the longest thing I've ever done is be self-employed, considering every company that I've ever worked for has shut down a division where I've completely gone out of business, whether they're publicly traded or independently traded wow. or independently owned. And so... You know, that's that's a question that often that often people ask. And, and really, I tell them that, that has nothing to do with more than God, because God has a better vision than I can ever have. Yeah, I'm smart. Like I said, I'm just smart enough and talented enough to see when things are coming. Sometimes I'm way too ahead of the curve. Um, sometimes I'm right on it. When we when we talk about entrepreneurship and we talk about business ownership or even just business management and development and, and growth strategy overall, I consider myself having a really unique talent for sustainability and growth. My other curiosity is that now that I'm in this growth phase, I'm trying to figure out how the fuck to do it myself. Like I can grow my clients. I can grow people who come see me. I can take them and say, hey, this is the next level. This is the next plan. This is how we approach it. This is how we roll it out. Boom, let's go get it. But I sometimes struggle doing it for myself. Why do you think that is? You said that you said that three or four times now. I don't know what it is. I'm working on it. I can't figure it out. It could be the environment I live in. It could be I fight all the fucking time. Like I, you know, I can't sit at the table and not and not see the injustice. And where some people will say nothing because it, it they know that if they say something, it affects their economic positioning. I can't. I, I have to say something. I have to call the kettle black. I gotta say, you know, this plan is, is discriminatory and that you're only gonna allow 2% of the, the, the minority people to sit at the table. This is bullshit. You know, rewrite the policy. Why are we not looking at a bigger picture? Well, I live in a population that there's only 14% of the, the folks are African American and maybe 3% are Hispanic. And very few of us own businesses. Most of us work for other companies, but I'm the loud mouth in the bunch, right? You know, and and so I'm I'm constantly an advocate for for the little guy. Well, I'm the little guy. You know, I just happen to be a little guy who have figured out some things along the way and how to survive and to some capacity without doing things illegally to maintain my own status quo. I don't I don't know what the other pieces are. I mean, I, I, I could tell you if it was another company what I would do. You know, stages, step one, step two, step three. Sometimes they require resources that I don't have. It requires resources that you don't have. Sometimes it requires to the, the put people together and teams together that help you execute the, the dream. No one does it alone. I hate to say I've done a lot alone, but I've done a lot alone. You know, but the reality of it is, you know, the Ark was built by an entire family. So business is supposed to be built by families. You know, our biggest gangsters in this country who are even legal built their entire empires based on the family. You know, presidents, their entire families run this country. Their senators, their congressmen, their mayors, their city councilmen, their sheriffs, their cops. The question you asked me earlier, the things, the things if I, if the, the things I didn't know, right? If I'd, if I'd have known that I woke up one day and started an endeavor that I couldn't count on my family to be there, would I have done it? So I, my family's always talked about, we should start a family business. My family is uh, nowhere to be found in any business that I've done for the most part. Entrepreneurship is a war. It really is. You got to have a sound team. People have to believe the passion. They have to build. The, they believe the dream. You've got to have the resources, in some cases, to buy loyalty. <laughs> um, but there, there's a lot of combination. I, I can't really answer that question yet because I haven't done it. I've done it for other people. I haven't done it for me. Not quite yet. 
Question number six. If you could create a new holiday, what would it commemorate? The type of people I'd like to see honored, people you typically don't see. People who make the world go round and they're not wealthy. They're average, everyday people who struggle check to check just to maintain, but they step out their house every day to make sure the next person has an opportunity that they wouldn't, they don't even know, right? They're opening doors or creating passageways. And most people don't know, you know, my, my wife's father was one of those people. Just stupid, talented, live, lived in a, in a community that otherwise probably would not accept him, ran for office, held office, created policies, created opportunities for other people, connected the dots for other people. But very few people in this world know who he is. But I can tell you, since we've lived here for the last 15 years, I haven't met a white person or a black person who can't say that this was a guy that didn't move the world for a lot of folks. And had he not done the things that he had done, most people would be worse off. People like that need to be celebrated, you know. I, I, I think I think it's the little guy or the little woman, little gal, however the, the appropriate, you know, term is. I think it's it's finding those people who are heroes, those people who wake up every day, who create opportunities and educate our kids to see a bigger picture. You gotta commemorate the the the, the people that I would most people say are nobody and not important. They ain't do shit. Most of the people who we say didn't do shit have done the most. They're the ones with the bricks on their back and the scars to live through it. You know, we have opportunities because of the shit that they did. We just don't value them because we don't see them as successful. Nah, I don't, I don't know if a holiday per se, but you know, I'm not a big holiday person, but I think right. celebrating people, yeah, we gotta celebrate our people. We gotta celebrate all our friends, all our family. And I, I suck at that, I'm not gonna lie. I, I like to think I say thank you. I know when I say it, I mean it. I'd like to think I, I, I pay tribute to the people who have helped me along the way. You know, I've survived this because of people who have helped me along the way. You know, I've, I've been able to accomplish all the things that I've been able to accomplish because of the people who helped me along the way. Hell, we wouldn't be sitting in this building right now if it weren't for people who helped me along the way. And, you know, right. but, uh, you know, I'd like to think that I'd, I'd celebrate them. Maybe, I, maybe you're giving me a pathway to figure out how to celebrate them more. For more info about Miguel, you can find him online on Facebook and Instagram under F5Enterprises.com, all one word, and also his name, Miguel Hampton. Also, I'd like to thank you for taking the time out to listen. As I release this, it's a crazy time around the world, and I want you to take some time to connect with your loved ones, and please be safe. The next episode will release on April 1st. Yes, the next episode will be on April Fool's Day, and I'll be with stand-up comedian and professional wrestler, the man scout, Jake Manning. If you enjoyed this show, please, please, please get online, take 30 seconds, and leave a review so other people can see this thing and we can grow the channel. So I appreciate you. Thank you very much. Until next time, see it, hear it, speak it, live. Hope you had a great day, everyone.